So I have a friend who he pastors a church in Arkansas, and he's like one of the best pastors I know. I mean, he's like Mr. Caring, and I just have learned a lot from the way that he is involved in people's lives. And I saw he, he does a lot of like pastoral things on Facebook, like posts these really great messages. And yesterday I, was, I saw this message where he said, uh, he said, stop thinking that you are ugly. You are, but stop thinking about it. And I was like so shocked because this guy normally is like sharing Bible verses all the time and I just been, I was just laughing so hard. And then uh, last night a, a friend of mine who I haven't talked to for a, for a while um, who was involved in church for a long time, he planted a church at one time. I think he was like a, you know, pretty involved in church for 17 years and then had some tragic things happen in his life and then he ended up, you know, getting out of ministry and and then he started going to this church for a while and then had some really, really tough things happen in the church community with, with people. And now he's just kind of going through this season of like, he told me, he's like, this is the first Easter in 17 years that I'm pretty sure I won't be in church. And I was like, oh man, he's telling me more about it. And he said to me, um, as we were texting, he said, you know, I just am in a place where I'm really broken and I just need someone to love me and to care for me. And my heart was just like breaking, and I, and I thought, man, I think that that's the most vulnerable and honest thing that anybody could ever say. And I'm really convinced that we all need pastors. We need to be pastored. And I don't mean like get preached at, but we need people who care for us. Amen? Amen. We need people to care for us. And, and I was sharing with him, like, I've been in church my whole life, and I can, I can really think about... Um, you know, the ways that I've been pastored and shepherded, and there's a couple ways. Um, I have had, even though I've had, you know, a gazillion pastors in my life, there were three in particular who were very, very pastoral for me. They were, they were like, you know, they, they were at my house uh, with my family, um, shepherding us and, and loving us and being present through some of the most challenging things that we ever went through. But then you know, the way that God works is that God works and gives us grace and ministers to us through people. And so I've had many times in this church community as well as other communities where the way that I got cared for is because of you, because of our community. You know, getting texts about, hey, we're praying for you or, or having people drop off uh, meals and things like that. By the way, Jennifer, uh, or where, yeah, Jen dropped off three meals to our family last week and oh my gosh, you need to sign up for her delivery service. <laughs> One of them was like bacon and cheese and chicken. And I was like, you had me. I love you. I feel so cared for. <laughs> but I do think that we need, we need to be cared for. We need to be pastored. And then I always kind of turn that into like a, what if we as a church, everybody in this room, you know, really saw ourselves as, as pastoral people? Like what if we all really went the extra mile to extend compassion and empathy and love and hope and encouragement because I think that those things add up. They add up. Sending those little texts to people, just letting them know you're praying for them or that you're in, you're in, you want to encourage them or if they need to get together and, and spend some time uh, just talking you know, over coffee, that, that really does make a difference in people's lives. Um, today is Palm Sunday and as we said, it's the beginning of Holy Week, you know, it's the week where we, we lean into Jesus's final week um, as he journeyed to the cross and to his resurrection. And 
Traditionally, you know, we've had, I think for the last four or five years, and I'm sure before that, we have palm branches waving around here. You know, we wave them in the air like we don't care and all that crazy, weird stuff. Um, but it was funny when I, I tried to order a bunch of palms um, through this one uh, distributor who just distributes all his Christian stuff. It was like, you know, you could order it, but it wouldn't be here until like May. And I was like, that doesn't help us at all. And so I was, I was... I actually found out that there is a national shortage in some ways of palm palm branches, which I thought was very fitting. It's like when you order an Amazon book and it either comes in two days or in two weeks. It's basically the same thing right now. Yeah, or one day. It's super weird, huh? Um, but today we're gonna we are gonna you know press into that that story a little bit, the triumphal entry of Jesus um, when he enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. We're going to read a passage of scripture from the Gospel of John, and then we're going to reflect a little bit on it this morning. But if you have a Bible and you want to follow along in your Bible, we're looking at John chapter 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels, and they're the the four books of the Bible that that tell the story of Jesus um, in his life. And they they take more of a historical narrative approach, telling us what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And so we're going to read John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. It'll also be on the screen if that is helpful for you as well. But we'll begin in verse 12. We read these words. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, or Hosanna, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, hail to the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy, but after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. Or other translations will say, look, the whole world has gone after him. And I want to just spend a little bit of time, in a sense, kind of setting Palm Sunday in context. Because every year... On this day, we have palms and we, we kind of lean into this, this Christian holiday, this Christian day where we remember Jesus' triumphal entry, his, his like announcement into, into Jerusalem about the coming uh, Passover week. And I think it's important to realize that in ancient Israel, at the time when Jesus was, was alive, um, this was the beginning of the Passover celebration. And so if you have been around church for a long time, you probably know the story of Exodus. And if you haven't, you can go back and read in the book of Exodus the story about how um, the people of Israel um, had, had gone to Egypt at one point in time and then were there for hundreds of years. And over time, they went from being a people who were, who were like, um, I guess, blessed and, and provided for to then slowly becoming enslaved. And by the time that Moses is born, the Jewish people are in slavery. And so yet what we read in the story is that God miraculously um, set his people free 
from slavery in Egypt. And that's all in the story, the story of Exodus. And you may remember the 10 plagues or the parting of the Red Sea when the people of Israel cross the Red Sea and then Pharaoh's army goes after them and the, the sea crashes on them. But there's this big thing called the Passover lamb in Exodus where, where the Passover lamb prophetically foretells of an ultimate Passover lamb, who the New Testament interprets and helps us understand is Jesus. And so that is the, the season that, that uh, Jerusalem is in, and all of Israel is in. All the Jewish people are in the Passover celebration as Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. And, and it's interesting because when you look at the stories of the Bible, you'll see over and over again that God's deliverance of his people is a common theme. It keeps happening over and over and over and again. In fact, it not only happens all throughout the Old Testament, it even happened in what we call the intertestamental period, the period from Malachi, the end of Malachi's ministry around 420 BC. And so for 400 years, it, it was, we, we have story after story where God provides deliverance for the people of Israel and I've spoken about this many times about how it seems like one of the things we see in the Bible is there's these cycles of renewal where Israel has God do something amazing for them. God delivers them from, for example, Egypt's slavery. And then he, he gives them the commandments, the law, as a response to their salvation. And then over time, the people of Israel drift away from Yahweh, from God, and then they start serving other gods, and then God has to judge them, and then he delivers them. And there's these cycles over and over again where you see that. It's like, I don't know if you've ever done this where you read the Old Testament, and you're just like, man, those, the, the Israel is so dumb. Like, let me just put this in perspective. So imagine watching God carry out 10 plagues against Egypt in order so that the, the Pharaoh and the Egyptians would let you go. And you're like, I mean, you're now allowed to leave, no more slavery, and you're, on, you're marching to the promised land, and you see him part the sea, and God provides this path so you can get across it, and then he destroys the army, and then like 10 minutes later, you're like, hey, I got an idea. Let's get all the gold, melt it down, build a calf and worship it, right? It's like it makes no sense in the story. You're like, how could you go from this to that? It just seems pretty crazy, right? But let me just tell you an observation I have. As a human being, this is what we do all the time, isn't it? You know, like we, we experience God's grace and power and then, you know, the next day we're driving and somebody cuts us off and then things start to happen, Right? I mean, you get my point is that it's just, it's really, it's, it's like we have cycle after cycle, and it's just the human condition I think we have at work here. And so by the time that Jesus enters into Jerusalem, they are in Passover celebration mode. They're leaning into this, this reality. The Jewish people is leaning into this reality that God has delivered their people time and time again, and it's a celebration time. And as you read the story, you see that there are these things called palm branches that the people are waving, right? And, and not only are they waving, they would throw them at the feet of those entering into Jerusalem as a way of honoring them. But by the time that Jesus 
is entering into Jerusalem, these palm branches had become a nationalistic symbol. They were a symbol that, that kind of rose the hearts of the Jewish people to have hopes in their Messiah. It was a reminder that there was a coming Messiah. And so that is essentially a, a thing that John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke are wanting us to realize is that crowds, thousands of people have been hearing the stories about Jesus have been watching the works of Jesus, and they have come to see him and to follow him. That is what's happening here in this story. I mean, palm branches had a, had a massive amount of, of symbolism for the, the ancient Israelites. I mean, it's really similar to how, I think, in some ways, um, the American flag and, the, and our national anthem functions. Um, I, I remember a couple weeks ago, I was at, my, one of my sons is playing baseball, and he's in the minors. So their game started a little earlier than the majors, and so we're in the middle of the game, it's like third inning, and all of a sudden, like, this thing happened, where everybody just stood up all over the field, and they all took off their hats, and like turned, and looked away, and I thought something was going on, and it was because the national anthem was playing, and everybody was honoring the flag, and so in, this, in, in a similar way, the, the palm branch had this symbolic Symbolic power amongst the people of Israel is what it did. As soon as they saw those branches, it, it brought a little bit of hope, messianic hope, that one day somebody would bring salvation forever for all of Israel and for the people outside of Israel as well. And so now prior to Jesus riding into this um, city on this young donkey, a number of really amazing things have happened. Though I just want us to kind of see what's happening here so we can really understand the point. So I want to catch us up, in a sense, to John chapter 12. We're just going to catch up really quickly and just think about these things um, because I think it's important for us to understand the context of John chapter 12 because a text without a context becomes a pretext. And a lot of bad theologies out there because people take a text out of context. So let's just think about what's happening here. And we're going to go back to John chapter 8, or the end of chapter 7. What happens in, in John chapter 7, if you're, if you're following along in your Bibles, you can just start in John chapter uh, 7 and verse 53 on uh, through the rest of um, this pericope. We have Jesus extending grace to this woman who is caught in adultery. She's caught red-handed in the act of adultery in a bunch of Jewish people, bring her before Jesus and they throw her at his feet. And what do we know about the story is that Jesus, being as brilliant as he is, he leans down and starts writing in the sand. And then he says something that many people in our culture outside of the church have heard before, he who is without sin, cast the first stone, right? And then what do we know the Pharisees do? They drop their stones and they get out of there. And I love the story because Jesus extends grace to this woman while simultaneously he jacks up the Pharisees. Like they're all like, all right, uh, we're gonna go over here now because they all know, right? And so that's, that's in this passage of scripture if you're reading it. Um, we also see that Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world in John chapter eight, which was when he's celebrating Hanukkah, uh, the festival of lights. We then have Jesus foretelling his death on the cross and what it would mean. He provides a little bit of significance there, but he's letting his disciples and those who are listening to him know that, hey, I am going to be crucified. I'm going to be lifted up on a cross. Then Jesus declares that the devil is a liar, a murderer, and then he also declares himself to God, to be God, and all of his listeners are like, you know, either like, yes, this is true, or the Pharisees think he's, he's committing blasphemy. 
Then Jesus heals a man who was born blind, as well as he makes it clear that he came not only to heal those who are born physically blind, but he comes to bring um, healing for those who are spiritually blind. And then Jesus teaches that he is the good shepherd, and then he came to lay down his life for his sheep, and he uses the, the word sheep all over John chapter 10, okay? And then one of the most powerful stories in the New Testament, Jesus travels to see his friend Lazarus. And he raises him from the dead, which causes the Pharisees later to want to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. And it's, you know, the passage in John 11 that a lot of people will tell you their favorite verse of the Bible is there because it's two words, Jesus wept, right? And then finally, right before the triumphal entry, right before the passage of scripture that we read, we have Jesus being anointed in the city of Bethany, by Mary, where she pours out this really expensive, expensive bottle of perfume and wipes his feet, and she just gives him all of the worship and adoration that he's worthy of. And then right after that, right after Jesus has done all of these things on this, on this kind of journey through John, on the next day, he rides into Jerusalem on a young donkey. And I can't help but say that every time that I read this passage, I think, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? who rides on a donkey. I mean, the triumphal entry says so much about who Jesus is. It says so much about who he is. I mean, normally I think when you study history and if you know about conquests or announcements of, of kingdoms, you know that oftentimes kings ride into cities on horses. White horses have been symbolic for a very long time. I don't know how many of you in this room would consider yourself a Lord of the Rings nerd. Anybody in the room? Four or five of you? Okay. The important thing is that there's more of those than Star Trek nerds. Okay? <laughs> I did say it. I did. But what's interesting is in the two towers, there's this, there's this part of that story, and it's very powerful. Because if you know anything about the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and you know Tolkien was a devout follower of Jesus, him and C.S. Lewis, part of the Inklings, wrote these stories, and they, they wrote these stories in order to communicate spiritual truths, right? And so there's these themes under each one of those, those movies, and, and one of the most beautiful pictures is, is for me is in the two towers when, when, when they're going to war, and it looks like they're about to die, and the castle's being ransacked, and it's like there's no hope, and all of a sudden, as the sun comes over the horizon, this army comes, and it's this really powerful um, destruction of the enemy, and it's, it just raises all these feelings of like, yeah, victory. But it's interesting that Jesus enters into Jerusalem on his way to the cross, riding on a donkey. And so what does this teach us about Jesus? I mean, I think it teaches us that he's meek, he's humble, he's also servant-minded. He's been saying this over and over again, I came to serve. Uh, he's convicted. He has convictions, and therefore he's courageous. He's not weak. I think that's the important thing to realize is that Jesus is not demonstrating that he's weak in the sense of like he's not a strong man. He, he absolutely is. But he's also a fulfiller of Old Testament promises. You know, one Jewish historian who then converted to Christianity, he found in the Old Testament over 400 prophecies that spoke about Jesus. And I think conservatively, there's at least 300. 
But we see that, that he's a fulfiller of Old Testament promises, as John notes. He came to, to fulfill these, these requirements, these hopes, and these promises. And, and so he rides into the city of Jerusalem on a young donkey. N.T. Wright, who is a modern theologian who I absolutely love, he, he says this about this passage. He says that John adds other echoes of prophecies and psalms, which all point in the same direction. Jesus is the true king coming at last to set his people free. So we're reading the Gospel of John as opposed to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I've gone through each one of those passages for the last four years. And this year we're in John. And the reason why I wanted us to to just kind of think about John a bit, because John does theology a little bit differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not, not in contradiction because each one of these authors is trying to communicate truths about Jesus to different audiences and from different perspectives. And so like really quickly, if you think about it, you know, the gospel of Mark starts at Jesus' baptism. And I think that Mark was writing primarily to an audience of non-Jewish people. And so it's for like people like us. So I think the gospel of Mark's a great place to start if you're wanting to know more about Jesus. But he starts at Jesus' baptism. That's kind of his point. And then Matthew's gospel is written primarily for Jewish people. And when he starts the, telling the story of Jesus' life, he starts at, at Abraham. And he ties the whole story of Jesus back to Abraham. And then Luke, who's writing again for Gentiles as well, he draws Jesus' story beginning at Adam. And along comes John. And John says, in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. And so John is doing theology in a a significant way. He's wanting us to see things that that other authors just kind of missed or maybe didn't quite have the time to to reflect on because John wrote his gospel later after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had been written. And so what is John doing here is I think that John is really wanting us to understand that Jesus' triumphal entry is connected in a very powerful way to Lazarus. That's why it mentions how all the people were coming to to see who Jesus was um, when he's entering into Jerusalem because they had heard the story of Lazarus. And this is it. Jesus had set Lazarus free from death itself and the crowd of people had come to become followers of Jesus. Their faith had led them to action because true faith always leads to action. And, And that's what's happening here. The whole world, that's what the Pharisees, the Greek word for, uh, that we have in our text that says that everybody, it's cosmos, it's everybody in the world was, was coming to see Jesus according to the Pharisees and that's why they were freaking out. And so there's a couple of things that I think we can kind of lean into here. You know, the tri- triumphal entry of Jesus I think is about worship. And that's why the other synoptic gospels really, they really center on this, this idea of Hosanna, Praise God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and, and we know in, in the other gospels that, that there were Pharisees who were like, who, why are they doing this? And then Jesus says, you know, if they didn't do it, even the rocks would cry out. It's because in this moment, all of, all of, of the world, all of the cosmos is, is beginning to understand and recognize who Jesus is. 
Because all throughout the last three years of Jesus' life, he has been doing signs and wonders. He has been teaching powerfully about the kingdom of God. All over the different gospels, we have the gospel writers noting that people heard Jesus speak and they said, he speaks as one with authority. He is a, he's a person who's, who's speaking and teaching us truths that how could he know these things? He's from Galilee. And the reason why is because Jesus was so different than all the other religious leaders of his day. He was so different. And, and I gotta tell you, one of the things that, that, that just keeps on, I don't know, like grounding me and rooting me every single week, despite all the challenges that, that our, our lives have, it's the reality of who Jesus is. I mean, if you read the Gospels, you can't help but fall in love with him. And I gotta tell you right now, if you don't spend time reading the Gospels regularly, you need to start doing that because if you would say you want to follow Jesus and everybody around that I know is always like, what would Jesus do, right? We all, want to, we all know Jesus is someone we want to emulate our lives after, but you can't really know what Jesus would do if you don't read the Gospels, amen? And so I want to just tell you that this week we're entering into Holy Week. Tomorrow is Holy Monday. We have Holy Tuesday, we, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then we, we entered into the end of of the season of Lent by celebrating the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. This is a good time to lean into some of those scriptures, to really think about the significance of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and what it meant, because everything that Jesus is doing right here leads up to the cross. Let's stand up together.